As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Alvaro Pereira joins us now, acting chief economist at the OECD and, of course, with his Portuguese economics. And I'd also point out, Alvaro, your British Columbia cred, which tells me that it's all econometrics. How good are you now at OECD (laughs) of guessing the statistic? Is it... Do you have a lot of confidence in degrees of freedom and trying to guesstimate out to 2024? Well, Tom, it's, it's a very, very challenging environment, but I, we have very confident about our forecast. We, we, uh, we've been, uh, as you said, we, we warned about the slowdown. Uh, and right now we're saying that, uh, listen, we are, we are facing the largest energy crisis since the 1970s. And we have a dramatic picture that shows exactly that governments around the OECD are spending around 18% of GDP just in, in right. energy. And this is as, as much as we did in the 70s and 80s. And so a very challenging environment. So we feel very comfortable about our forecast. With your GDP growth slowdown from whatever it was in 2021 down to 3 point whatever, down to 2.2, how does China play into that vector? Well, for China, we are uh, for remember this year was the lowest growth for China since the 1970s, with the exception of the height of the pandemic, and we are forecasting China next year to rebound to about 4.6 percent, but going down to 4.1 percent to 24. But there are two risks that we think that can plague this uh, central scenario. Uh, first of all, um, it's f- fairly possible that if the strict COVID lockdowns continue and they they become more pervasive, then certainly growth is going to be uh, a lot less than we are forecasting. And the second one has to do with the real estate market. Uh, if the adjustment on the real estate market is less smooth than we would like it to be, it's very possible that also growth will be negatively affected in, in, in China. So we uh, are seeing a bit of a, a rebound in, in, in China, but risks are certainly fairly high over there too. Alvaro, you pointed out that this is really an energy crisis, which isn't necessarily the way that everybody else would frame it. They would view it as a pandemic crisis. They would view it as a free money uh, for decades kind of crisis that that have come to a head. They would view it as an inflation crisis more broadly. Why do you view it through the lens of energy primarily? 
Well, first of all, the energy crisis is a direct consequence of uh, Russia's aggression on Ukraine, right? And so, which has led to lower growth and, and more prices uh, rising everywhere. Um, we see that even before the war, uh, prices were starting to go up, so you're absolutely right about that. But clearly, uh, inflation became a lot uh, more pervasive, more entrenched, and also the pressures have intensified after the war. Uh, we have, uh, I think, a very interesting estimation in our uh, forecast, which is trying to see whether this is a mostly because of supply shock or it's mostly a demand shock. Well, if it started as a supply shock right now in many countries uh, of the OECD, you can see that it, it really right now it doesn't matter. It's, it's demand and supply. In fact, in some, some, some countries like the UK, demand factors are now having more an, an impact than the supply factors. So right now what we're talking about, very large inflation uh, uh, in many parts of the world. Monetary policy has to continue to be decisive. It has to uh, do what the monetary policy has to do in order to get out of this situation. I think we're starting to see some positive signs in some parts of the world. So, Alvaro, you say that you think that probably China's economy will recover next year, which might actually increase demand for certain goods, including energy. How will this factor into how much developed markets have to be hiking rates, have to be countering that increase in demand, the increase in momentum that we see heading over from the east? Well, what we highlight as well is that um, this inflation is having a tremendous impact on people's incomes, right? If all across the world we have a, a dramatic picture on, on real wages, and all across the world real wages are going down. And that's why we focus so much that right now if you want to ease the pain, if you want the pain to be uh, as short as possible, it is absolutely essential that we continue to be determined in this fight against inflation. Uh, if the economy starts recovering as we expect in the second half of next year, then certainly this will, will uh, give a bit more um, uh, pressures on prices. But I think as long as monetary policy is doing what it's doing uh, and remains steadily right. fast on, on fighting inflation, we'll be able to have lower inflation going forward. Elvaro, when Bloomberg Surveillance visits you at Central Portugal for the ECB confab here next year, you're modeling out 6% global inflation. Every single central banker is going to say that's unacceptable. Do you perceive that as a stopping point or do you have a different statistic where we get to a vaunted 2% Taylor perfection? What do we do when we get inflation down to 6.8 or dare I say 5%? I think what matters right now is when, when we're going to have inflation peaking and, uh, and coming down steadily. And so the trend is going to be very important. I'll give a good example. Brazil, uh, when they started, uh, they, they were one of the first countries to face significant inflationary pressures. And their central bank decided to hike interest rates very decisively for a few months. And now it's starting to pay off. I think the last reading we had also from the United States is positive. And so what we need to do around the world is exactly to assess the situation. Some countries have acted a lot more than others. Uh, uh, but what matters right now is to get to a situation in which inflation peaks and starts to come down durably. It has to be durably. It cannot be only one data point. And this is what we need yeah. to monitor. In our forecast, we forecast that uh, basically inflation will start to pivot uh, around. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. 
Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. ...mid next year and will continue to come down, even though it will remain right. fairly high in some countries at the end of 23. I don't want to get you in trouble, but I'm going to get you in trouble. With your academics and particularly teaching at the University of British Columbia, how do you respond to a central banker gaming out a two-year recession as we got from the governor of the Bank of England? Do you have a confidence in establishing a real GDP view out 24 months or, dare I say, 36 months? Well, listen, in all these forecasts, you know and I know that all these forecasts, our best scenario, our, 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 um, what we expect, things will evolve. Things change. You know, nobody expected a pandemic three years ago. <laughs> nobody expected a war, you know, just, just, just a few months ago. Yeah. So things change. Uh, what I can tell you is that our forecasts, given what we know today, what we see in the data, we, fair, we, we, we are fairly confident uh, about our central forecast right now. But risks? As I, as I said before, are rising. And so risks that think can go uh, wrong uh, are there. But right now, our central scenario is not a recession. Sluggish growth, but not a recession. Uh, this has been wonderful. Dr. Pereira, thank you so much for joining us. Alvaro Pereira at the OECD. We migrate to something more stable. And that would be economics. Dana Peterson joins us of Wesleyan and University of Wisconsin uh, Economics at Madison. And thrilled that she could join us uh, this morning. Uh, OECD came out with a big fancy report, Dana. Yours is more important. How have you tweaked your view for next year on real GDP? Well, we think that the economy is probably going to be flat next year, and that incorporates a couple of quarters of recession. Uh, maybe uh, the fourth quarter of this year is a little bit negative, but really most of the brunt we think will be in the first quarter of next year, minus one and a half percent, and then second quarter minus four tenths, and then kind of a, a, a moderate increase in the back half of next year. So all folding up into pretty much, again, flat growth for the economy. Do, how do you respond to what the conference board has seen over the many decades? of when inflation spikes up as a general rule, it's stochastic and comes down with quite a plunge, with great rapidity. Do you buy that, that we could see that? Well, when I look at the components of what's driving inflation right now, a lot of it's rents, right? And then the other aspects are services, um, non-housing services. But when you look at rents, they're really sticky and they tend to reflect what has already happened in the housing market. And we know that rents are, are difficult to come off because certainly people being pushed out of the new and existing home sales market, they're going to go into the rental market. So that means that we're probably going to have a period of time where rents are still going to continue to push up inflation. Dana, how much do you buy this idea of a shallow recession? 
Well, our own forecast suggests that, yes, the recession will be shallow. And indeed, along with that, you might not have a really big hit to the labor market. And a lot of that's a function of labor shortages. So if you have uh, companies hoarding workers and still also hiring people, especially in those in-person services and other types of jobs where you physically have to be at work, that's going to support consumption. And so we may not have a really deep recession. But that sort of is a, a bit of a, a bet on the fact that things will deteriorate quickly enough for the Fed to pause, for the lag effects to actually kick in and show us that there is some sort of active deceleration and in inflation that gives the Fed confidence, right? I mean, without that, if there is momentum, how much does that really cast this idea of a shallow recession aside? Well, I think the Fed uh, is looking at the data, right? So already the housing market tends to react very quickly to uh, interest rate hikes. And we're also starting to see consumers dial back their expectations for how many like durable goods they're going to purchase, especially things that need to be financed. So the <clears throat> Fed is already seeing some of that evidence, but certainly there are lags and it's not clear how long those lags are. But I would suggest that the Fed you know, still has some way to go in terms of raising interest rates, but that those interest rate hikes are probably going to be smaller than what we've seen. Dana, I'm fascinated, and again, this is the heritage of the conference board, which going back to 1947 has always aggregated our economics. Are we so polarized as a society of the haves and have-nots that you can't aggregate your macro analysis as the conference board has done for decades? Well, I mean, the good news is that even though we do have aggregates, we also look at individual income groups, especially with our consumer confidence. What do you see there? Data. Well, the youngest and the oldest groups are, you know, a little bit more disgruntled than the folks in the middle. And certainly um, people who are at the lower end of the income spectrum are being hit harder by inflation. So we can look at those details there. I, I, I'm please, Lisa, pick it well, up. Well, I'm, I'm actually I'm, wondering I'm just stunned there. how much this has to do with home ownership, right? If the younger people are not able to get into homes and they're seeing their rents increase and it's absolutely prohibitive to go and buy a home for the first time because interest rates, because mortgage rates are 7%, how much is that this distinguishing feature right now between the haves and the have nots? Well, it certainly is a distinguishing feature, but let's not forget during the pandemic, <clears throat> the biggest increase in home ownership was among the younger groups, right? Gen, gen, uh, well, the millennials, right? Because many of them, you know, have children now, they have been able to get jobs and they've accumulated some savings. And certainly there were injections of cash uh, from the fiscal stimulus. So that did help them, at least during the pandemic, those who were gotten, yeah. got in there early to buy homes. The millennials have their kids playing, investing in Doge off their couch. I mean, that's how bad <laughs> it is. Dana, I want to go back to what we're going to see here on the inflation guesstimate for December before the Fed meeting. Is that a mystery to you or do you have some confidence in the conference board pick for what inflation will be uh, before December 14th? Well, we think that inflation is going to continue to ease. We probably reached a peak earlier this year. Um, we're seeing food and energy prices come off, uh, certainly in the last few months in terms of their contributions. And that's really important in terms of bringing down the aggregate level of inflation and also things like utilities for for home, for people who, you know, all the people who live in homes. Um, but certainly we're concerned yeah. about, again, the rents and services prices continuing to rise and place pressure on upward pressure on inflation. Dana Peterson. And thank you so much with the conference board. On Denmark, 
I believe playing today. Jens Nordvik joins us, founder and CEO of Exante Data. Come on, Jens, world stops. Denmark, Denmark, Tunisia as well. What do you think? Denmark is really percolating with a chance here to make some noise. Yeah, well, I hope they can do a little bit like uh, England did yesterday. Okay, see that terse, <laughs> terse comment there. Jens, let's get to it with the dollar. What is the 2023 view here on the dollar? There's been big figures moves uh, this year. Can there be big figure moves next year? So this uh, year has been uh, essentially one of the strongest in, in the history of the dollar, right? Massive run-up against some of the biggest currencies in the world, like seeing the yen move and so forth. And then in the last couple of weeks, we've seen... Uh, a big reversal within that bull move uh, and like our our positioning indicators that we track at Exante data have have had some of the most extreme signals right uh, real money investors were very very overweight dollars all the trend following investors were really uh, max long dollars and we had this uh, very violent washout so now everybody kind of has to decide, okay, is this really a big change in trend or is it just some kind of repositioning in the market? And, and the repositioning was definitely a big piece of what was going on. And we could already see as soon as the news from China, which was actually quite important to the turn in the dollar overall, as soon as that is less positive, the dollar kind of looks like it wants to go back to the appreciating trend, right? So I, I think for me, the key is global growth. We can talk about the Fed, and the Fed is important, but right. the most important variable for the dollar is what's going on with global growth. And if we still have a problematic growth situation in China, yeah. if Europe doesn't recover, then it's hard for me to see that there's going to be a strategic turn in the dollar. We can have like wiggles, and we had a big wiggle now over the last couple of weeks, but a strategic turn requires that global growth is going to get better. And for me, that's too early to make that call. We can go into detail so, with that. Jens, you were talking about China, and that was sort of giving some uh, fuel to this risk appetite, the idea that perhaps they were tiptoeing away from COVID zero. It seems like it's the opposite today, and yet the narrative in the market is not cooperating. You're not seeing the off move in equities. You're not seeing a strengthening dollar. What do you make of this, the idea that a lot of the reasons behind the rally are turning on their head, but the market is not? Yeah, so, so the first thing I would say is that there's been optimism around China, right? And uh, the optimism was based on the notion that there was going to be a move away from zero COVID policy. And what we're seeing in China is that there might be a desire to somehow relax those policies that have had a disastrous impact on the economy. But is it really feasible, right? We now have uh, cases that are skyrocketing. We have a population that has been told that COVID was very scary and something that should be avoided at all costs. And uh, this could go on for a long time in the sense that they only have around, call it 20,000 cases per day, right? Like go back uh, to when we had a peak in the United States, which is a smaller country uh, population-wise, where we had a million per day, right? So this, we're in the early phase of an acceleration and this could go on for a long time. And, and they, are they just gonna let it run? That's that's would be a kind of pretty pretty strange way for them to go from one extreme to the other. So it's going to be a, a gradual, messy process here. I think it's going to be hard for the market to cope with that. 
Although it seems like they're coping with it right now. Heading into yeah. 2023, it seems like the consensus is you might see some more uh, dollar strength and then it will turn into dollar weakness. You will see Europe start to outperform. You will see Asia start to outperform. You will see the U.S. underperform. Where do you push back against the consensus right now? Yeah, um, it all it all comes down to inflation and the inflation expectations, right? We, we saw uh, after the CPI print, one CPI print that uh, was better than the trend we've had. Market rallied enormously. There was also after that that the dollar had uh, one of the, one of its biggest moves ever in a few days. Um, so it really comes down to inflation. Have we turned the corner? Or we're going right. to have sticky services prices. We, I think it's it's pretty clear that goods prices are starting to normalize, but the market is also hoping that that services prices will also normalize. If that's not the case, it's going to be a big problem for risk right. assets, right? Because that's being priced now that the worst is over inflation. If that's not the case, we're going to be back. Right having risk assets under pressure. Jens, thank you. Go Denmark. Jens Nordvig with us. It's a sounding data. I want to point out again, he won the beauty contest institutional investor three years in a row in foreign exchange. I can think I can say no one's ever uh, done that. I may stand corrected on that. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Here's what you need to know. Zydeco Pipeline was a phenomenal song by Aaron Neville years ago. Daniel Lenoir produced it down in New Orleans, and it is a key, key oil pipeline along the Gulf of Mexico. It is the focus now of our next guest. Stephen Shork is principal of narrowness and acuity on the hydrocarbon market. It's Shork Group. Stephen, let me summarize for our audience. We're up to our eyeballs in petroleum and the price is going to go down. Do I have that right? Well, in the near term, uh, we certainly are at risk to the downside. So we had the market that switched into Contango. This is the NYMEX WTI crude oil market. Contango meaning that the price this month is cheaper than the price next month. Uh, that occurred on yesterday's expiration in the December contract. <laughs> Why are we in Contango? Well, simply because, to your point, the Zydeco pipeline, which is a significant pipeline that takes oil from the shell patch in West Texas that's being produced and takes it to the export market in Houston. Well, there's maintenance now that's going to last well into December on that pipeline. Right. So your oil flows are lower. 
but you're still producing oil in West Texas. So if you can't move it into Houston, you have to put it somewhere. And it's very important as far as the NYMEX is concerned, because where that something is going to be is up at the NYMEX terminal complex up in Cushing, right. Oklahoma. So we're looking at a situation where we're going to be building supplies at the NYMEX terminal complex right. over the next four weeks. The surprise to me, Stephen, as an amateur, is West Texas Intermediate breaches $70. We get a 69 print on American oil. Is that in your realm of possibility? <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes. With regard to uh, now, this was one of our more bearish cases. Um, this is really at the tail end of our modeling of where we could go. But certainly I do expect to see um, oil find a base here, assuming we do not go into a significant recession. And we have to keep in mind, this is the Biden put. Right. This is the level $70 oil in the low 70s that the White House has said. This is the level we're going to start buying oil to refill the SPR. So if you're sitting there, why would you sell $70 oil when the United States government's going to come in and start buying 200 million barrels at that price? So there, in effect, without recession, is your floor in the market, Tom. So what about the ceiling, right? Because we were talking about the tight market about, you know, two minutes ago, and we were talking about how oil prices were going to rise beyond $120 a barrel on uh, certainly Brent and close to that on uh, WTI. What's changed? so materially in the physical market to make that completely an obsolete argument? Yeah, well, <clears throat> excuse me, absolutely. So the 100, 130, which is where we were in the first quarter, second quarter of last year, that's unattainable That to say that we can get back up there, but we can't stay there because that's where we saw the demand destruction. So that is short of something catastrophic happening in supply in the market. That market cannot go up and beyond that. So what has changed now, of course, is the weakening economies around the globe. So it is a near-term bearish picture at this point. As we said, the Russians are front running the price cap. So they've dumped a lot of oil on the market. The refineries in Europe, fearful of that price cap, have bought all that oil. So you're having a hard time now selling physical oil. Uh, so a lot of this physical oil is getting rolled forward into the first quarter, which is going to keep the market supplied. And the fear now, of course, is COVID with China. Right. When is that economy finally going to reopen? There is some optimism that it can uh, reopen fully by next summer, but there's still a lot of skepticism in that. So without that demand in the market, you're, you're, you've got this low scenario of oil prices. I think in that low 70, low 80, I think this is the bottom of the market. And therefore, we're waiting for the demand because we think about this, CapEx right. is, is challenge. Interest rates are, are moving higher. Your hurdle rates for CapEx are that much higher. So you're still looking at a market that's going to be a dearth of capital, which is not going to go, of course, obviously, into bringing more oil to the market. So your long-term picture is still bullish. That still gets you back to that $100 yeah. range, but we just have to you know, get over these short-term hurdles. Could you foresee a time where you see the price of gasoline go down and the price of diesel stay high and even go higher? Well, that, that's the new dynamic that we're in, Lisa, because right here in, in my hometown, Philadelphia, the, the once great epicenter of the East Coast refinery, um, we've lost 55% of our refinery capacity. So three years ago, we had a refinery in South Philly that produced or, or uh, processed 330,000 barrels of crude oil a day. That was a lot of gasoline, a lot of distant fuel that went right into our home market here in Philly. And then, of course, 90 miles up the Jersey Turnpike into Linden, New Jersey, in the New York Harbor market. We know 
longer have that. So that diesel fuel has to come from somewhere. And keeping in mind that gasoline is your best margin for a refiner. So this is where they maximize. So this is where you bring more gasoline to the market at the expense of distillate fuel, diesel fuel. So now we have to... Yes, I'm sorry. I, I just this is so important socially, Stephen Shark, and you've been so dead on this. If we affect a shortage of heating whatever fuel in New England in the greater Northeast, how do you perceive a government response of this? I mean, what is the linkage of not in my backyard to government regulation, investment incentives to fix this problem? Well, the short-term fix is for, for this winter is the Northeast uh, Northeast Heating Oil Reserve, which you have two million barrels of heating oil sitting in tanks up in Connecticut, really? Rhode Island, Massachusetts, uh, and you also have that for gasoline too. So that isn't in fact, and I'm surprised we haven't seen that yet because here in Philadelphia, 45 minutes up the Northeast Extension, Allentown was out of diesel. They they closed down one of their uh, gas stations up there because they were out of diesel fuel. So well, we are running shortages into the Market. Okay, so but Stephen, again, yes. I don't mean to interrupt. I was in Paris, and on the way out to CDG, there were lines, lines, lines I've never seen waiting for a gallon of gas. Are you predicting that for Allentown or for Albany, New York? Well, certainly that that is the risk. I, I think gasoline we're we're, we're going to be uh, you know we'll, we'll get through this because you know, that's where the price incentive is. But with diesel fuel, with diesel fuel, uh, we're already running shortages, and that was shortages time before we even had any sort of uh, heating demand wow. in the market. So we're looking at the Northeast, the Mid Atlantic, okay. New England markets that are seventy percent of the homes or, or right. the market heat, heats with heating oil. So that that is an absolute risk. Uh, that will continue right. all through the uh, cold months. Absolutely brilliant here. The Shark Report, folks, I can't say enough about it. Yeah, I've got the emails. No, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. See Stephen Shark of the Short Group for five pages every day of shocking acuity on the hydrocarbon market. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. For insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations, and subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at CarterEconomicForum.com.